Hi, I'm Dina Walker. And I am uh, Malcolm or Kalman Walker. <laughs> what will you be calling me this time? Um, father. <laughs> um, and we are here doing the Walker Family Podcast. And this is it. Great. Where do we begin? In this chapter, we will discuss the beginning of the 20th century up until the end of the First World War. That's right. This is really the story of the story of Eastern European Jewry. In 1900, yeah. where are people? Let's look at my family, and then we'll look at Emma's family. For reference, my family is the Walker family, and Emma's family are the Kestenbaums. And Levines. And the Levines. Nobody is uh, where they'll end up. Uh, almost everyone is in Eastern Europe. The Volkoviches are already in Lodz. Mm-hmm. Lodz is a city that's developed very fast in, in Poland, a textile center. People came to Lodz only in the mid-19th century, but by the 1900 it was already one of the most advanced textile centers in the world. And what do the Volkoviches do there? Volkovich, um, Elazar Volkovich, my great-grandfather, some kind of banker, money changer, something in that line. Very Jewish. Uh, I only know about that because uh, my grandmother, who was then 1900, she was still Hanna Rosenberg, she had ran her own business from the age of five or six, And selling buttons. Selling buttons, <laughs> that's right. Well, it began as a selling buttons in the square in Lodge to Russian soldiers. Uh, she took credit from um, a shop. She took a tray from a house, and she began like that till she had a... By 1900, she probably already had a shop. She was about 14, 15. We don't know how old she was because we don't know when she was born. She didn't know when she was born. <laughs> Uh, so 1900, the Rosenbergs are in Lodge, the Volkoviches are in Lodge. On the other side, the Kutz are in Vilna. Kut is a strange name, but it goes back two and a half thousand years <laughs> to uh, the exile to the area of Kut in Iraq at the time of the Khorban Bet HaMikdash HaRishon. They were Kohanim, that was a family tradition, They were Kohanim, who lived in the area called Kut, became famous because there was a battle there in the First World War. Which is where? In, in Iraq? In, in Iraq. Wow. Yeah. And um, somehow they moved from Kut to, uh, to Russia. Mm -hmm. The records of the family were kept in a manuscript that was in Odessa in 1918 and had been seen by... Uh, one of the original actors in the Habima, whose name was Kutai. He writes about that in his in his memoirs. Are we related? He, yes. Oh. Kut, Kut Kutai. Uh, uh, he and writes. How did he see that? He he lived in. He was brought up in in Odessa, so it was part of the family tradition there. Mm -hmm. uh, I had a distant cousin called Epstein who also knew about those records but they disappeared in 1918. So let's go back to 1900. The Kutz are in Vilna at that time. The Kutz are related to the 
aristocracy of the Jewish community in Vilna, minor aristocracy, I might say, because they're not uh, they're not the wealthy, not they themselves are not one of the wealthier families or one of the learned families, but they are related to the wealthy and learned families. Um, according to my researches and Elliot Kutz's researches, my grandfather Jacob Kut was born in 1890. His mother was a Sima, Sima Kut, Nave Valk, who was uh, um, also born in Vilna, and her mother was uh, Tsipora Strashun, Tsipora Valk, Nave Strashun. Mm -hmm. She was a member of the very famous Strashun family, which was the family that controlled Vilna in the Jewish community in Vilna in the 19th century. Uh, her father's sister was married to Shmuel Strashun, who was one of the wealthiest and most learned Jews in Vilna and whose comments adorn the back of the Shas Hagaot, the Chidushe Harashash, on every page in Shas except for one. So one of the... Wow, so we're of, related to the learned and rich. Yeah, that's right. They were related to learned and rich. Not only that, you see the... The album, uh, Elliot once showed me, and um, his our great grandmother's album, which contained pictures of her cousins. It, they would send each other pictures themselves because they didn't. And one of them was whatever her name was, Sarah Strashun, mm -hmm. ba uh, Baroness Ginsburg. <laughs> um, so they they were well connected all round. So uh, the Valks were also well connected. The Valks were descended from. Uh, supposedly from a one of the great scholars of the 16th century, Baal Sefer Meirat Einaim, Yaakov Yoshua, or Yoshua Yaakov Valk, uh, one of the classic commentaries on the Shulchan Aruch, uh, whose descendants were also part of the ruling family in, in, in Vilna. Mm -hmm. So um, they were well connected, and they're living in Vilna, in, in 1900, moving to Berlin only in 1904. Mm -hmm. And what's their religious orientation like, both families? Uh, well, we're going back now to Volkovich. Volkovich were Hasidei Alexander. Mm -hmm. Rosenberg were Hasidei Kozhnitz. Chaim Tzvi Rosenberg uh, was my great-grandfather. Not sure if he ever really worked. He was kept by his mother-in-law. He was like a very quiet, scholarly person. Not sure. Uh, I never worked out what he did for a living. Mm -hmm. But um, uh, and, and Volkovich were Chastei Alexander. Alexander was the Hasidut that became preeminent in Lodge because Alexandrov is a village very, very close enough to Lodge for most of the Jews in Lodge at that time to identify with, um, with the Hasidut. 1900 one supposes that most Jews were still Orthodox. Right. Also the Kuts. And the Kuts themselves, yes. Uh, the Kuts were, yes, very strictly part of the Vilna Jewish tradition. Um, maybe on the more modern side. There is proof. We found that Kalman Kut, my great-grandfather, was one of the original shareholders in Otsahit Yashvut Hayudit, wow. the Jewish colonial trust, had about a hundred thousand shareholders. Everybody donated. Everybody gave us a very small amount, and uh, that was the original um, financial arm of the 
of the Zionist organization, which became Bank Lomi. Oh. So he was modern enough to be Zionistic. So until now, we have... So All right. So Jacob Kut, Yaakov Kut, he's uh, my grandfather. Frida Zaks is my grandmother. Mm-hmm. Um, Hannah Rosenberg is my grandmother. Mm-hmm. And she will be marrying Baruch Mordechai Volkovich. Okay. So now we've moved on to the Zaks family. Right, the Zaks family. Zaks family in 1900 are already in Leipzig. Leipzig is a growing Jewish center, a very, very old, very old German community. The Leipzig Fair was something that would existed for hundreds of years before. People would come, and it was no people would come from Poland and Russia. They would bring their wares, their products, and they would do business with Germany, Central and Western Europe, or, or through the Leipzig fairs. Buying, selling mm-hmm. was a major event. And so because it was such a center, it became also a, a good place for people to come if they wanted to get away from Russia and Poland. It was also the center of the fur industry by then. Well, probably the world center for furs, one of the world centers for furs. And it seems that the fur industry was dominated by Jewish families, mainly by then Jewish families who were what's called Ostjuden, who came from the East. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Zaks family came from Lithuania, like the Kut family. The Zaks family originated in Lithuania. Where is Lithuania? Lithuania is one of the kingdoms inside Russia. Okay. Um, Lithuania, Vilna, where the Kuts come from, okay. is part of, it's the capital of Lithuania. Bencion Saks was born in Memel, which is on the border of Lithuania and Germany. Um, Memel is where the Malbim, um, the famous Parshan, was, uh, was a Rav, and he remembered him as as a youngster. So we're going to connect again to the fur industry also well, when we talk is, about okay, Kestenbaum. the Kestenbaums. Very much. Benzion Zaks went to yeshivas. Not so common. Not taken for granted in those days. Certainly not taken for granted. But um, when he was a baby, his mother used to take carry him into the shuls and bate midrash so that he should imbibe the atmosphere of learning. And it's something that he uh, certainly did. So he went to um, the Bet Midrash in Aishishok, where Chafetz Chaim was um, was there, his teacher. And from there he went to Kovna. Kovna is another is a, another big uh, Lithuanian city uh, to the yeshiva of Slabodka, mm-hmm. one of the great yeshivas of its of its time. And he must have been one of the earlier. Earlier, I imagine he was learning there, 1880 something around about that, the, the beginning of the the Slobodka period. In Slobodka, he was also very close to one of the great um, founders, leaders of Tnuata Musa, uh, Rav Yitzhak Blaza, who was known as Reb Itzel Peterburger. It's about one of the legendary figures of the Tnuata Musa. Uh, and he was his assistant. Shama, he, 
he he was very very close to him. What does Tnuat Musa believe in? Tnuat Musa believed in devoting time to perfecting personality and mm-hmm. character uh, um, in in its interpersonal level and also in its on its spiritual and a spiritual level. And it was uh, very very controversial at the time. Because uh, in in the yeshivas, as they were, they weren't really yeshivas. But in in as much as people learned, people learned, people learned Gemara. That was what they learned. They considered anything else a waste of time. Whereas the Tunuat and Musa devoted considerable amounts of time, both in 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 personal learning and in um, meditation. Yeah, which it was sounds very, very new agey. It was uh, at the time it was it was close to Hasidut. It was a revolutionary idea close to Hasidut. It was the idea of Rabbi Yisrael Salanta, who was, and Rabitzel Peterburger was one of the, Peterburger, because he was the chief rabbi of Pet- mm-hmm. Petersburg there beforehand, he um, he was the one of the main teachers. So Ben Sion Sachs uh, has um, learned in yeshiva, and he marries somebody called Nessia. No, he marries somebody else. <laughs> so he married a, a girl called Frieda Leibson, who came from Salant, was a cousin of Rabbi Israel Salanta. Mm-hmm. Frida died uh, either in childbirth or soon after her first child, her son, was born. And, um, Elias. Elias. Um, and uh, he then married her sister, oh. <laughs> Nessia. And their next child was Siegfried. And their daughter after Siegfried was my grandmother, Frida. Uh, my aunt, Sarah, after whom you are named, um, claimed that that had a very serious effect on the psyche of my grandmother, because she was called she was Frieda Sachs. Frieda Sachs was dead, yet she was also Frieda Sachs. Frieda Sachs was her brother's mother. Frieda Sachs was her husband's wife. So, because um, she was named after it, it, it was the a, wife and sister, it was a very psychologically a very heavy burden mm-hmm. to carry. As she used to say it was like Vincent Van Gogh, who would go to school every day through the churchyard where his brother Vincent Van Gogh was buried. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, and it, and it, and it uh, she thought she felt that that unsettled her mother uh, in her childhood, being this kind of dual personality belonging in this family and that family not not really not not really belonging totally anywhere in any case the Zaxes were in a place called Kranz uh, he was the Shochet in Kranz my grandmother was born in Kranz I'm not sure when they reached Leipzig could be 19 by 1900 it's quite possible they're already in they were already in Leipzig, uh, and the family grew up there. He was a, a very quiet person, but for some reason he was quiet, but also a communal leader and activist. And um, the Jews from the East were discriminated against in the Jewish community in Leipzig, and they built their own. They built their own big Knesset. It's called the Broderschule. It was built with the money of one of the wealthy Polish immigrants into Leipzig, a man called Kroch, whose family afterwards built the Holy Land Hotel, and it was built by Jakob Ben Sion Zaks. He was the main uh, he was the main mover in the construction of this very big, monumental, beautiful shore 
and very flourishing community in Leipzig. In Leipzig. Okay, so we're nineteen. So, we're, we're now in. We finished with my family in the nineteen hundreds. Let's give a little sikum. Uh, sikum of where of the four families and where each of them are. We have the Zaks in Leipzig. Zaks Zaks in Leipzig. Kurt is still in Vilna. Holkovich is in Lodz, and uh, the Rosenbergs are also in Lodz. Mm-hmm. We go to Emma's family. Where are they at this time? The Kastenbaums. The, well, it's the Levines the, and the Kastenbaums. Levines and Kastenbaums. Uh, I I think that the Levines came to America. I think 1904. Mm-hmm. We saw that on the uh, entry in the in the museum in, in Tanya. Oh. Um, and what's the museum in Tanya? That's the Beta uh, Gdudim, uh, where all the soldiers who came from abroad to fight in the First World War uh, to Palestine uh, are remembered among them uh, Sam Schneezalman Levine. So he was born, I think, in Vitebsk. Where is that? Vitebsk is, is Russia. It's, it's more Russia than, than Lithuania, okay. I think. Maybe Ukraine. That's where Mark Chagall, the famous artist, came from mm. and where a lot of his, a lot of his pictures depict the life of Vitebsk. Um, he came from Vitebsk, and his family, uh, I think, was still there at that time. Uh, the Ains may already have been in America. In the 19- Ains are... The Ains are... Saba Phil's Phil Levine's mother. mother. Right. The Ains, Wolf Ain, uh, a Lithuanian. You have to understand the distinction to generalize now about the different places where these people came from, mm-hmm. because... Um, there is a very strong distinction between Russia, Lithuania, Poland, Germany, uh, way of life, uh, approach to approach to life. Um, so w- we're talking now about the Ains, and we'll, the same applies to the Kurds. Mm-hmm. Um, Lithuanians or Russians who had come into Lithuania to study had a very, very strong emphasis on intellectualism. On education, it was very important for them. And so, um, the Kutz, you'll see, highly educated family. Um, Yakov Kutz's education was ended because of the First World War, but uh, the Ains also, all of them, very highly intellectual. And it was as if their cold intellectualism had give, made them all very individual. And um, and what are they interested in? Is it like a Jewish intellectualism? No, and all of it's or, general. Look at okay. the Ains. The Ains, um, extremely artistic. Mm-hmm. Your great grandmother, very very talented pianist. People don't remember how sensitive and skillful her, her piano playing was. Um, very very high level. Her sister was an artist. It's a very open-minded also, I think, to be an artist or... Right, Wolf Ain, that, at that time, around right about 1900, if that's around about then, I don't know. He opened, he got to America, he opened uh, a school, Eitzchayim, um, was the main Orthodox school in New York, in maybe New York. the only Orthodox school in New York. He opened a kindergarten, a Hebrew-speaking kindergarten. Who spoke Hebrew then? Um, they didn't speak the kind of Hebrew that you spoke Ashkenazi, Ashkenazis. Like like Bialik Hebrew. Right, that's right, that's right. That was a bit because he came from Volozhin. Volozhin was mm-hmm. the first great 
right. Lithuanian yeshiva, right, the first great yeshiva in Europe, and in in Wolfein studied there. I'm not sure what time of Barry Levine. He was a friend of Barry Levine, a cousin of Barry Levine. Not uh, not too clear. Levine Which afterwards is family. Yeah, but in a different. But it just happens by accident. The right. Levine name comes up twice. Right. Uh, so that's the Ains and the Levines. Levines will be moving to America at some point. They, I think the Ains may well already be in America. Mm-hmm. Possibly. I'm not. Sh- I'm not. I'm not a hundred percent sure. Uh, maybe they also come early years of the 19th century. Uh, the Kestenbaums could still be in Tarnoff. I'm not sure. They're on their way from Tarnoff to Leipzig. Okay. Kesten Tarnoff is a Galician town. It's not a big city, but it was a reasonable-sized city and I've always a st- and a strong with a strong Jewish community. Galicia is part of Poland. Mm-hmm. Poland was divided in 1900. There was no country called Poland. Uh, the main part of Poland, Congress Poland, was uh, part of the Russian Empire, and the western part of Poland was part of the Austrian Empire. Lodz was part of the Russian Empire. Tarnow was part of the Austrian Empire. Okay. So the official language is German, but there's Polish is is a is a is also a, a I mean it's a sensitive issue the the issue of the Polish language uh, how important is because Polish independence was always uh, was always an issue in the 19th century so they are in Tarnow um they are Poles they are again you would say that the Poles are less intellectually um have a less of an intellectual connection but uh, the family of the Kestenbaums, the father of the family, Eliau Kestenbaum, actually went to yeshiva, not in Poland, not in Galicia, but in Hungary, mm. in Bratislava, which was known to the Jews as Presburg. So he, he's in yeshiva in Bratislava, the leading yeshiva in Hungary, the yeshiva of the, Chaf, of the Chatam Sofer, mm-hmm. which was run at his time, maybe by his son, by the Ktav Sofer, or by the, the sons of the Ktav Sofer. But it's a very... Um, prestigious and important yeshiva in the history of uh, the Jews of Europe. I think he is also uh, a shochet and a butcher. And when he comes to Leipzig, that was his original, he set himself up as a, as a butcher. I always remember my uncle remembered, um, my, my, uh, one of my uncles remembers in the 30s, mid early 30s, there was some kind of communal meeting and Elio Kestenbaum was uh, in charge of the meeting, and somebody shouted. One of his um, op- the opposition called out that I remember when you used to sell um, chickens <laughs> as and an insult. As an insult, right? I mean, who are you? I remember you selling <laughs> chickens. So his answer was avazim, which in, G- in Yiddish is in German is gain atalomafagen. Um, so that's the Kestenbaums, uh, and um, we have the Brafs. Brafs mm-hmm. are in Tarnoff as well. They are somehow distantly related to the Kestenbaums. Um, Arye Leib Braf was... Who's the father of Yeti. Yes. Died young, um, and his wife uh, brought up the children. They lived 
they lived in a street that I've been to, opposite a military hospital. Building is still there. In? In Tarnov. In Tarnov. And close to a very nice park. Mm. So the Brafs and the Kestenbams are either in Tarnov or on the move from the Kestenbams from Tarnov to Leipzig, looking for prospects, looking for a different life. Germany was considered to be a good place for Jews to live. Tolerant, there was far less anti-Semitism. And uh, and there were lots of and it was full of opportunities mm -hmm. for education and business. So we we are deeply Ashkenazi. Yes, I'm, I'm totally. <laughs> Unless you go back two and a half thousand years to Iraq. Um, so we are in the beginning of the 1900s, the 20th century, um, and we have moves also towards America on the Kestenbaum. Levine side, and also moves to Germany. Moves to Germany, and there, there will be moves to England. Okay, so <coughs> let's start are, with Germany. This is really the story of the story of European, Eastern European Jewry. It was very devout during most of the nineteenth century. It became highly assimilated. We don't understand to what extent they assimilated, but highly assimilated in terms of converting to Christianity, or in terms of um, becoming far more loose in uh, any connection to, the, to, to religion, in terms of moving away, moving to Odessa, which was a far more liberal, uh, which was a part of the Russian Empire, but was far more liberal, or moving away to countries where you could feel freer and less restricted, like Germany and, and the West, and also moving away from the terrible anti-Semitism and un unpredictable uh, state of Jews under the Russian Empire. Okay, because in the Russian Empire is the time of the Praot? This is the time of the Praot. My grandmother, Hanna, uh, then Hanna Rosenberg, mm -hmm. remembers, remembers pogroms in Lodge. What, is, what does she remember? She remembers hiding. She remembers hiding under a table. Jews w were in need of hiding also then? Uh, yeah, but there were, there were, well, pogrom was a pogrom. And um, even though it happened and then a few people were killed and it calmed down and, mm -hmm. and, and there were so many of them that they didn't even go into history because they happened the whole time. A priest would say something, people would run out of church, kill a few Jews, and then things would get back to normal after, after a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. That cycle was something that people tried to get away from. That's why so, where, so many moved Where away. did they move, the Rosenbergs? The Rosenbergs moved nowhere. The Rosenbergs stayed in Lodge okay. at that, that moment. The Rosenbergs weren't going anywhere, and neither were the Volkoviches. Okay. However, however, 1904... Right, because they were also there in the Second World War. Um, depends. There were Volkoviches there in the Second World War, yes. There were many... Many, most of the family were, were murdered. 1904, the Russian Tsar makes another one of his idiotic decisions and goes to war against Japan. And then Jews, who really have no emotional sentiment. Uh, other sentiment towards Russia or to their Tsar, mm -hmm. find themselves traveling thousands of miles in order to fight the Japanese of all people. There was no real Japanese threat to Russia. 
and um, it was a major disaster as far as the, Ru- the Tsar was concerned, as far as Russia was concerned. And uh, Baruch Mordechai Volkovich was enlisted into the Russian army as a chaplain's orderly, because they were they were rabbi. They 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 did cater for their Jewish soldiers, and through, uh, for, for large parts of the 19th century, there were numerous Jewish soldiers who were enlisted as young boys and kept in the army for 30 years or wow. more. So, uh, so he was Ozer Rav Tzvai. Somebody, he met a doctor on a train who bandaged him up um, and so that he looked very badly wounded. He took a train back to the lodge and, um, and left his gun, which they buried somewhere in the garden, and he escaped from Poland before he could be caught as a deserter. What's, what's his name? Baruch Mordechai Volkovich. Okay, and where is he going? He is sent to his uncle in Budapest in Hungary. Hungary is part of the... Obviously, we're going back to the Austrian mm-hmm, Empire Austrian. and the po- Russian Empire. Europe, there are numerous countries in Europe, but they don't exist. There are empires. Russian Empire, German Empire, Austrian Empire. So back to the Austrian so Empire. He, back to the Austrian to Hungary, to the Austrian Empire. Uh, at that time, Hannah Rosenberg, who had opened the business when she was five, or why did she open the business when she was five? How did that happen? In Poland, there was no Jewish education. There were chadarim for boys. There was nothing for girls. Mm-hmm. There was no Bet Yaakov, nothing for girls. The only education available to a girl in Poland is Christian. Was, was Catholic. Catholic. So you rather her not so, learn. So, so many girls went to convents and somehow survived, but um, many of them just went nowhere at all. Helped their mothers. When said she didn't help her mother, she went out and she opened a business, and um, the business grew from the tray that she began with to. Uh, um, to a stall, and from a stall to a shop. She was reasonably wealthy by the time she was 17. As, as a woman, alone? Yes, as a woman, totally alone. Totally alone, all by herself. She built up an independent business, and she used to deposit her money with, with Elazar Volkovich. And one day she came to make a <laughs> withdrawal, and he said, the money's gone. She said, what do you mean the money's gone? So the money's gone. Where did it go? It went with... Went uh, with my son. What do you mean it went with your son? Well, you go to Hungary, marry him, and you'll get back your money. That's so rude. <laughs> you know, like a woman gets up at age five, <laughs> makes her own business, makes money. By the time she's seventeen, she has a, uh, she has she has money in the bank, and and goes away with a man. Right, and she got to Budapest. She found that he had already used her money to rent an apartment, and um, and put up curtains. Not sure about all the rest, and presumably some other furniture as well. So they marry in Budapest round about 1904. How does a woman of that age travel to Hungary on her own? God knows. How does find a, woman... a man? She was. She had an address. There were Polish Jews in Hungary. Hungary was also. There were lots of the, the movement. I described the movement 
away, just to get away, people whose houses had been burnt down or people whose whose parents had been killed and God knows what. People were on the move westward, anything, just to move west, just because to get out. Because of pogromim. But because of the policy of the of the Russian Tsar, mm-hmm. which was that one-third of the Jews would be killed, one-third would emigrate, and one-third would convert. Okay. So they marry in Hungary? So they they in marry in Hungary. Budapest. You, in Budapest, you've it's seen under the frame. Under a metal chapa. Right, you've seen the, the frame is still there. It's quite possibly the, the original frame. But they don't stay in Hungary. They move back to Poland. But they've already put up curtains. Uh, I never asked about what happened to all the furniture. But they're a young couple, and they, um, I don't know why they moved. They moved to Poland, but not to Pol- not to Russian Poland, but to Austrian Poland. Austrian Poland, which is Galicia, the capital of that Austrian Poland is Krakow. Mm-hmm. They moved to Krakow. Uh, they know the language. Maybe they're more at ease there. Maybe they could be, make a life there. Maybe it's a good, it's a station for the move further west. I don't know what was on their mind. They had babies. They had twin sons. She was a busy woman. She was doing things, organizing things, making a living. She had left them with someone, and they died. Most children in those days died. People could have 11 children and one survived. So she had the twins and the twins died. If she had the twins in Krakow, I don't know. Could be that the twins were born in Budapest. I don't know. Maybe she was. She left them with somebody and she was planning the move to Krakow. I don't know. But she had another baby in Krakow. That was Maya. So Maya becomes her oldest son and the only one of the children born in mainland Europe, mm-hmm. in Poland. They Meyer is the son of <coughs> of Baruch Mordechai and Chana and Chana Wokovich. Both of them born in Lodge, ran off to Budapest, settled in Krakow, Krakow, and from there make the move west. They traveled across Europe to Belgium. Okay. There was a Jewish community in Antwerp. And that Jewish community was was already growing, flourishing. Lots of Polish people settled in Antwerp, went into the diamond business. Mm-hmm. Uh, they considered staying, but they didn't. And they continued to move westward and cross the sea to England. They landed at Tilbury docks, in the English docks in the, in the East End. There is, Grandpa once found the railway track that, went from the docks to the east end of London. Short ride, but it was a special railway that uh, took people off the boat to the heart of the Jewish Jewish London, which is the east end. Okay. They've traveled only with their son, Meyer. They've traveled with their son, Meyer. Yes. And um, they they can't be treated as refugees, because they have too much money. In other mm. words, they weren't put into a shelter. There was uh, the Rothschilds had built a Jewish shelter in London to take in the refugees as a to absorb them. 
until they were ready to go out and uh, how many refugees are coming to England in those years a lot and there's a, and there, and there's um there is a big move to limit the amount of Jewish refugees uh, coming into England uh, there is a great fear that they will have a harmful effect on England there's a book which the Landos had I remember 50 years ago calling on the English government to limit the Jewish uh Jewish immigration and it, I don't even know I don't I'm not sure if, I'm not sure if there were were limits but there they settled in London in Aldgate and they began finding the finding themselves there first of all a Jew needs a, a community needs okay. a Knesset and um and it was only natural that they should look for a community of people who came from their, their part of Russia of their part of Russian Poland mm -hmm. people who have that kind of Polish background not the Krakow background people who came from Galicia had their own Knesset in the East End or the numerous Baltic Knesset but the big Knesset for people from Galicia was founded by our rela relations the Israels and it was called the Chikovish people they were Hasidei Chikov that was Galicia the Polish Hasidim gathered in a small Beknesset called Black Lion Yard. Black Lion Yard. And um, there you could find Hasidei Kor, like the Landos, uh, Hasidei Lamars, which was part of Kotsk. That was, uh, there was a family called Weingarten. Hasidei Alexander, like the Weingarten's grandfather, was a Hasid Alexander, one of the earliest ones to come to England. And our grandfather and our, my grandfather was also. So these Hasidim, even though they didn't share the same Hasidut, but they sh they they shared the same attitudes, the same approach. I, in Poland, they had the same dress, even though they didn't wear strimals in London. But the high spodik, the high fur hat, mm -hmm. that's something that characterized the kind of Hasiduyot that gathered in Black Line Yard Shul. Only problem is they were all very hot-headed and there was no end of scandals, fights. We had a neighbor who had come there from Belgium in 1914 and he came to that shul. In Belgium there was an Eruv, so he was used to carrying on Shabbat and he came to Black Line Yard carrying on Shabbat and he was thrown down the steps. Aye. So um, they were... Um, uh, They're that, very, very orthodox. Very orthodox, and it was a it was, it was a very famous community. Famous, the families. We're talking about 120 years later. There are families that are still very, very deeply involved in Orthodox Judaism, uh, in England and in Israel. Um, the Landos, I said, the Weingartens, um, many of whom are still Hasidish. Um, so it's it's a family it's a shul that managed to hold its community together um that's where the walker riches and the landau's meet that's where the uh, walker along the, the day land. yes yeah they were accused of being too insular not going out not trying to affect the rest of the community but uh, you have to understand the threat of being in london there was very very high assimilation in in terms of not keeping Shabbat. Mm -hmm. uh, my uncle Cyril was brought up in the east end of London, 
was not allowed to play with any of the Jewish boys in history because none of them were Shomrei Shabbat. But then this is what happens to the Volkovichs when they arrive in London. They have a shul now. They also have a list when they leave Poland. They get a letter. Their family sends them. They're in London. This is a list of people who are what's called Landslite. A Landsman is somebody who comes from your city. He's not a relation. He might be a cousin or a cousin's cousin, but it's as if he's a cousin. Uh, Same mindset. In the absence of family, a Landsman all over in England and America, that's one of the, the most important word that a Jew has. Jew knows when he comes to England or America. Landsman. Who is my Landsman? About 15 years ago, we were at in Armona Natsiv. Right, you know what I'm going to say. We were at the Vernbrams and right, we were right. watching Betty Boop. Right, right, right. And they're walking and then she sees and they, people they, and says, ah, Landsman. They're, 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 that's good. You can see that that's that. There's a joke that they could appreciate in America because there, they, she, she, they, a lot of cannibals are coming, chanting, and she quickly paints herself up and starts chanting like them. And one of them says, "Oh, a landsman, shulam aleichem." <laughs> that was the the best thing that a Jew could hear, because it meant finally somebody's opening a door for me. And, and they had they had their list. I don't know who all the people on the list, but one of the people on the list was a family called Flatto. So after Shabbos, they went to, uh, found their way to Notting Hill, which was not part of the East End. It was a better area, which was, but also had a lot of Jews, you know, from the movie. And uh, they went to see the Flattos, their, their Lundsman, mm-hmm. Lundslight. And they come to a, a they come to the address, and there's a shop there, a big shop, and a very busy shop. And it's clear to them that this is a shop that's been open all day. It wasn't a shop that just opened an hour before. but the, And the shop has been open all day, and it means the shop has been open on Shabbat. And then there's a crisis. And then there's a crisis. And my, and my bubba, my grandmother, turns to Mrs. Flato and says, What happened? What's going on here? Shabbos, what's going on? And she says, Handla, you don't understand. This is England. England, we have to have our businesses open on Shabbos. Otherwise, we cannot, can't survive. So that's it. She decides. They're leaving. They're leaving. And then the story is that um, she she goes, starts fasting. She won't eat anything. She won't eat their meat. Certainly won't eat any, any, any meat products. And she starts nagging her husband that they have to go to, back to Belgium. At that time... Uh, a letter arrived that um, the Rebbe, the Rebbe of Alexander, the Alexander Rebbe, a man with 50, 100,000 Hasidim in Lodz, mainly in Lodz, uh, revered in all Poland. He was coming, he was a very sick person. Actually, he didn't, didn't even have a, he didn't, never had a beard. Hmm. He had no children, he had, didn't have a beard. Um, and he was always uh, very sickly. And he came to uh, Scheveningen in Holland. For a cure. So Baruch Matrevolkovich crossed the sea, the North Sea again, to uh, to visit him. Without his wife? Without his wife. She had to look after mm-hmm. the house, the baby, whatever. And the Rebbe told him, stay where you are. Don't go, don't move. There is a Hechsher in London which is called Machsike Hatat. Join that community and have their eat their food and uh, one of the versions of the story is he said to him, don't live in Whitechapel, but live in Aldgate. Um, 
there were the two Jewish areas in the East End of London. Ten years ago, the Alexander Rebbe died. I went to the Shiva in B'nai Barak, and I told his sons, who were sitting Shiva, including the person who is now the Alexander Rebbe, Hasidut Alexander never grew. It never picked itself up after the war. It was um, totally, totally wiped out. Mm -hmm. uh, but there was a, a relative of the last Rebbe, of the pre-war Rebbe, a cousin who set himself up as a Rebbe in B'nai Barak, and his grandson is now the Rebbe of Alexander and a member of the Moetzet Gadolei HaTorah, well-known figure. So I told him the story that, that my grandfather had gone to the Rebbe when he was in Holland. He says, oh, Holgate, Witschopel. They knew the story as well. Ah. <laughs> Why did they know the story? Not because they heard it from the, the but because that the Rebbe, was because the Hanchaya. Because in, in no, no, because in 1949, my grandparents came to visit Israel, mm -hmm. and there they told the story, and the story passed on. And the the wonder was always how is it possible that the Rebbe could give them such fine directions where to live? After all, what did he know about London? But later on, I recently heard that, that he had. I said there was another family of uh, Hasidei Alexander in that in their community, and it's quite possible that they, in their letters to the Rebbe, had described London very in great detail, detail and saying where it's worth where where a person can live and where a person shouldn't live. So there we are, there in London, and so we're at the beginning of the 19th century, early the first decade of the 19th century. They're already settled in London by 1910. They're already settled in London. Um, they don't appear in the census. Of 1910. What's that? The census is the uh, the counting the of count. the right. They don't appear um, because Baruch Matrovich never believed in appearing in any census. He didn't want to be known about. He didn't trust authority. Altit vadal rashut. It says he didn't trust any government. Didn't trust any authority. As far as he was concerned, everybody was as bad as the Russians and the Poles. He didn't want his sons to be enlisted in any army. So then in 1930, when there was a census, he and his older sons all ran off to Paris for a week. And when they knocked on the door, my father answered the door. He was 11 years old. And they said, um, where's your father? He said, I don't know. He said, where's your mother? I don't know. He said, what's your father's name? I don't know. <laughs> what do you call him? Well, what do people call him? He said, Daddy. So there was a distrust, and it was justified because in 1940, that was how Jews were rounded up in Europe. So they moved to London with Meyer, and then they had along the way... And then they had other children. 1912, the day the Titanic the sank. Titanic. Uh, Auntie Sarah was born. 1909, Alf was born. Then Esther, Jack. My father was born in 1918. Uh, how many of them survive? All of them S managed to grow yes, as they, they older all, people. Right. This is England was more developed than Poland. Mm -hmm. Families tended to survive. So they are there six was, children. There was infant mortality. There were epidemics. Mm -hmm. There was flu and the small sicknesses that we take for granted now as being uh, curable were, were incurable in those days. But they, they all managed to survive. So they're a family of six children. A family of seven, because Lily was born after uh, my father. Uh, my father was born out of London because their house was bombed in the First World War by a Zeppelin. Okay. They moved north 
to the Midlands in England, to Leicester, and they had a business there. Their business was in oil, and Grandpa's birth certificate, it says his father was an oil merchant, which was a nice way of saying that he sold oil and herring. And um, yeah. In fact, uh, there was once a raid by the Brick Lane mob, which was a gang of criminals who were hired to wreck their shop. Oh, wait, this is the woman who bought a cinema. Yes. So yes. she bought a cinema in what year? I don't know. Okay. I and, can't say. And she changes it into a fish story because movies are a passing, <laughs> phase, are yeah. passing phase and you fish. Can, people will always want fish. And now, almost 100 years la later, we know that she was right. Because people still want people fish. Still want fish and, and they aren't going to the cinema. <laughs> almost no. So <laughs> she did miss. She did miss the golden era of the cinemas. <laughs> but if the store would it's survive, true. true. There was there, there was a woman, there was a, a woman, Mrs. Gradovsky, who bought a cinema and another one and became a billionaire. Uh, right, right. <laughs> and they owned the English Television Network and the cho the whole chain of uh, the Odeon cinemas. But, um, yes, all right, so that's a, a boat that my grandmother missed, and she didn't regret it. She, mm -hmm. she said to me, what do I know? What did I know? I, the, this, was, this was a fad. And you understand, what people used to sit there in front of flickering screens, and you could hardly work, yeah, make out wa what was wa going watch on. Watch a there. horse kind of see his four feet disconnected, and this mob <laughs> uh, tries... So, uh, so, so they tried to break into the store. She lived above the store and uh, she came down. I don't know where her husband was, but she came down, uh, saw people uh, had broken in. She ran to a barrel of herring, pulled out two herrings and, and she, blind them them. she blinded them all in their eyes with herring and schmaltz. Which is probably the wonderful, most wonderful story ever. She made me promise never to tell the story. Why? She was very embarrassed by it. She was a very strong woman. She also, was. from being a little girl, having her own business to kind of standing up for herself. She was a very, very powerful personality. Yeah, she sounds like she... Very powerful. And she was a counter to her husband, who was a very powerful personality. So it meant that there were a lot of fireworks in the house. Mm -hmm. And the children were also, some of them, very uh, powerful and some... Yes, be more quiet, like Grandpa. Right. There, there, there was um, a lot of tension in the house, especially between uh, the son, Jack, mm -hmm. who right. was the one above Grandpa, number five. He was um, very problematic. He was hyperactive in an age that didn't understand what that meant. He used to sell pencils in school, propelling pencils. And he even, the teacher, like he even bribed the teacher. The teacher would pick him up every day and take him to school on his bicycle because he probably supplied him with <laughs> pencils. But but when the principal, or as it's called in England, the headmaster, mm -hmm. um, ended the business, he kicked down the headmaster's, the door of his study, and was carried home on the shoulders of the boys. He, he, he was a very stormy personality, and he remained a very stormy and unstable personality with enormous potential uh, that sometimes he would begin, you would begin to realize he was a very successful businessman. He built the biggest motel in Europe. He was a prospective parliamentary candidate 
for the Liberal Party in some place. He was uh, a member of the Board of Deputies of British Jewry, but he couldn't stop um, treading on people's toes and creating terrible scenes. Yeah. So at what year are we now? So we're now in the 1918, because Grandpa has been born, so where, where is the rest of the family? This is about the First World War. Right. This is, this is the... the, the Grandpa was born at the end of the First, First World, World War, War after the house has been bombed. So at that time, these are the Wachowiczes which have uh, merged with the Rosenbergs. Right. And we still have the Kutz. The Kutz. Where are the Kutz in 1918? 1914, there's a bit of a problem. Well, 1904, uh, Sima Kutz is taken sick. She becomes sick, and she has to be treated in Germany. Germany. And so they got. A She's visa. married. She's married, and she has a few children. Who is she married to? She's married to Kalman Kurt. Mm-hmm. Um, she has a few children. The oldest is Tsipora, who we never knew about, who never came to Germany. Maybe she was already married then. She was older than the others, and she stayed in Vilna. Okay. And she was murdered in Vilna or from Vilna. Mm-hmm. In in the Shoah, probably with her, she probably had children. With children, with husband and family. Mm -hmm. There are another three girls, one son, uh, who come with them to Berlin, and another son who was born in Berlin. Three girls and one son. So the girls are Miriam, Mirka, Hannah, and Esther. And the one son uh, who comes with them is Yaakov, born in eighteen ninety. So he was fourteen when he came to Berlin, and. they came to Berlin just to, for a few months to be with their mother while she's being treated, and the treatment does not end after three months, and they get an expulsion order because their time is over. When was Grandma born? 1924. Oh, okay. So we they have get, a, so we have a long time until right, then. Right, so they have an expulsion order, and they don't know what to do, and Kalman Kurt uh, is walking, with is his walking head down. in the main street in Berlin, with his head down, looking... Which is the main street of Berlin? Unter den Linden, whatever it's called. <laughs> That's, I don't know if it was really that street, but then when the story was told to me, that was the, the street that they... And he sees a number of horsemen coming towards him, people riding on horses. Of course, that was what people did in those days. They rode on horses. There were hardly... There were no cars. And the leading horsemen stopped and addressed him. And he said, you look very troubled. What's wrong? And he told him, no problem at all. Tomorrow you go to the uh, emperor's palace in Potsdam and you speak to my secretary and he'll give you a visa. He says my secretary? I don't know how he said it. He said the emperor's secretary or my secretary. But at some point... At some point he understands. (laughs) That he was being addressed by Kaiser Wilhelm uh, II of Germany. Wow, you have the chills. Fun. I have the chills, even though I've heard this story so many times. <laughs> it's an interesting story on, on a historical level, because why? What? What is it? That, what? What's going on there? What is? Why is it that we assume that Kaiser Wilhelm is a person who is on? A, he's he's dealing with European issues. He's dealing with German issues. He's dreaming of being the ruler of the world, and not just dreaming about it, but planning it the von Schlieffen plan 
for the for the conquest of Europe is being developed in 1904 and is presented to the emperor in 1905. So why is he concerned about a Jew walking in the streets of Germany? And and I, I have a theory because there's a similar story. I read this after I read a, a story about the Russian Tsar. They, in order to give them a balance, to ground them, and to give them a connection to the people, the Tsar, an, an autocrat, had to feel that he was doing something for the people, doing something for individuals. So he couldn't do something for every individual because on, like... the, on the global level, mm -hmm. yes, he was he was saying, yes, there should be this tax and that tax. There should be schooling from the age of six or the age of seven or the age of five, and that affects everybody. But he needed a connection. He needed to know that he and the common man had a bond. The only justification for an autocrat is that he has a direct line. He doesn't need a parliament. He doesn't need anyone because he has a direct line to every individual. And he is the father of every individual. The Russian Tsar is the father. The German emperor is the father of every individual. The King of England doesn't have that kind of need. Connection. Doesn't have that need, even though there is a certain uh, connection, but there is never, in England, you don't appeal to the king. There's no appeal to the king. The king doesn't do some do f individual favors for people because there is a a reasonable structure beneath him that is aimed at helping the people here in Germany and and in but even more so in Russia there is no such structure. And so therefore the king has to have a connection with individuals. The king has a time where individuals can come in and, and appeal to him. But this and isn't one of that time, or is it that time that, is a stroll that in the street? It's not, even though it's not the, the time, but the very fact that you can do a favor for somebody, save his life, save his family, give him a job somewhere, or organize something, that is the justification for autocracy. Mm -hmm. it's, it's the bond that is created between the king and the people. So it's so interesting to think if he, he would ever even have have the thought of going to this king's office or appealing never, would never, in some sort of way. Because he's not his king. Right. Not, he would never have. He would, because he's an immigrant. Because he's right, because he's a stranger. But uh, it's interesting, David Kahn, my cousin, said that he once, 60 years ago, he was in he was in Beitvagan uh, when he was working in Boys Town. And he and he went into a shul in Beitvagan. Somebody asked him, "Where are you from?" Yes, and he said, "Ah, you're from Berlin. You are the grandson of Kalman Kurt. Kalman Kurt saved me because I was in the situation where I was uh, threatened. They threatened to to expel me from Germany. This is still before the um, well, in the before 1918. Mm -hmm. And Kalman Kurt organized a meeting with the secretary of the emperor, and the secretary of the emperor gave me." A, a visa to stay in Germany. So not so only did he get a visa, he, he also had, had kept protection. up a connection. Right. He he had this kind of protection, you know, what you call protexia. And uh, of course, that story continues. The story continues that the policeman who had originally given him his expulsion order, he now went back to the policeman and said, here, there's a letter from the king, from the emperor. And the policeman was very impressed. And from being very, um, this was very German, it's very typical of Germany, that you, your attitude changes from one extreme to the other because you see that something official is going on. 
And so he became their friend and he would come to them every Shabbat. And have and they would give him chon. And then as time developed and he became the commander of the uh, the local police, when he heard that the Gestapo were after my uncle Max Kurt, he phoned them up and warned them to leave and warned him to leave the home. What so, year does he warn them? 35, 36. So that is a connection well, well lasted. Yes, this is a 30 years later. Okay, we have one family in England, another family who has now a visa to stay in Germany, mm-hmm. which is going to... But they're not Germans. Okay. They're not Germans. They remain, they are, they are Russian citizens. Of course, with the Russian Revolution, all that is upset and they became, they became nothing citizens. They're what's called stateless. Mm-hmm. And that is, stateless is a concept that uh, is introduced in 1918, 1919, where the League of Nations takes responsibility for all the refugees in Europe who have no home because the country that they once belonged to doesn't exist anymore. The Russian Empire doesn't exist. Austrian Empire doesn't exist. And they are Hungarians and they're not Hungarians or they are Poles and they are Russians. They become stateless. Because they're stateless, they are also later on, because they're not enemy aliens, Mm -hmm. but they are stateless. So in the 1930s, they're not sent over the border to... With all the Polish Jews. Right, right. So so being being Russian was a big problem for Yakov Kut, because it meant that he was an enemy alien in 1914. So his law studies um, couldn't continue. He began studying law and rabbinics. Where is he studying in the German? And he's so he's studying in the University of Berlin mm-hmm. to become a lawyer. And he's at the same time he's also studying in the rabbinical cinema seminar of Berlin. This is in 1914. 14. Okay. So 1914, he'd be 24. I'm not sure. And there so, are probably lots of different other people that are known now that learn in the University of Berlin in that same time. Yeah, yes. Yeah, Just right. like Lea Goldberg studied there 10 years later. 10, 15, 20 years later. Um, yes. Uh, in the 1920s, uh, there are more about Rav Soloveitchik, the Bavitcher Rebbe, are all hanging around Berlin. It's interesting if he knew them in some way, if he, um, uh, because they were all part of the, the attached and some... F- some form to the Jewish community, not really part of the same clique because his clique was the Jewish uh, Students' Lush. Union or the mm-hmm. Orthodox Students' Union, which was, even in the 1920s, was a very, there was a very strong bond of people who had gone through academic studies, academic rabbinic studies, and they were attached and they had uh, their photos of, of them all. So his period as a student, and it, it must have been quite a long period you think he was born in 1890 um so 1908 he must have begun studying 1914 he was still studying but hadn't completed maybe because he spent uh, a few years first uh, in the rabbinical mm-hmm. seminary so he didn't finish anywhere he didn't become a rabbi and he didn't become a lawyer he went into finance as a stockbroker till the crash of 1929 Jacob is married what year? They got engaged in 1918. Okay, so when he's starting his studies, he gets engaged? Before, you know, he's already 28, I think, when he got engaged. Oh, so that's... 
I don't know where these missing years are because that, that's a little bit. I've never tried to to work it out chronologically, but he must have started studying 1908, 1914. Everything got cut off because studies to be a lawyer you had to be a doctor of law. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a three year. It was you had to do a doctorate. You couldn't be otherwise. And and there were also the years in the rabbinical seminary. And they probably were building up to being a rabbi and a doctor. That was his idea, and it didn't work out because it was all cut off in 1914. Why? Because the, the, first World War? Because the First World War, and he was an enemy alien. Mm-hmm. So he was kicked became, out? His, yeah, his li- and his life became very problematic. I don't know how he dealt with it. I don't know, during the First World War. His future brothers-in-law were in the army. Um, we're talking now about the Zacks family. Mm-hmm. At some point, Ben Sion Zacks bought an American passport, what he thought was an American passport. Apparently, it was quite a racket in those days to sell American passports, <laughs> let people think that they could get into America uh, without any problems. He bought an American passport. His son went to the recruitment to the Lishkata Gius in 1914 to say, you can't enlist me, I'm an American. I said, no, you're not, that's a fake. <laughs> so he ends up in the army in the German army, and so, as does the uh, the second son, Siegfried. So it's a strange fact of my childhood. When I was growing up, I was surrounded by a lot of people who had been German soldiers, hmm. including the Shamash of the Shul, who had had, I think, two iron crosses, or our art teacher in school who also had an iron cross. <laughs> So the Zaks family has served in the army. The Walkovich family hasn't served in the army because they are refugees and they are... Uh, right, and they, and they avoid... And they're armies. enemy. And what are they doing during the war? In the Walkoviches? Yeah. In England. Oh, talking about the Kuts. What do the Kuts do in the war? I really don't know. I don't, I don't know. Uh, all I know is that they got engaged in November 1918 at the end of the war when there was, it was movement was very difficult in Germany because the trains were all disrupted. And where did they meet? Uh, I don't know. If, I don't know. They was sent, he was he couldn't just meet. There wasn't the place was in chaos. Germany was in chaos. Germany was never invaded in the first world war, but the war ended. That was part of the soreness of mm-hmm. the German people that they were never really defeated. That was why they called it the stab in the back. But they surrendered because they were encircled. Okay, so there's chaos. Uh, chaos. He goes with his friend, Rabbi Zilberman, the the grandfather of all the Jerusalem Zilbermans, to Leipzig for his engagement. And he's, he marries into this, what was already a wealthy family. The wealth came from his brothers-in-law. I don't know if they spent the whole of the war in the, in the army, but the wealth came from the... First, from the oldest brother, Elias Zacks, who was a very skillful trader in furs. Benzion Zacks was a dead loss in <laughs> business, so his son told me. He said he had, he had furs that his father's bought in the warehouse for years that they were unsellable. <laughs> so oh, uh, Benzion Zacks was, was a very important communal leader. This is where the families begin to merge, because in that time, 1918, uh, ben Sion Zaks was the leader of the Eastern Jewish community in Leipzig, and he is joined in the leadership by uh, Elias Kestenbaum. From? Who'd come from Galicia, 
who's uh, gone into, who was a butcher, who went into the fur business, whose sons were also very skillful businessmen, and they developed uh, a very successful business. So Zucks and Kestenbaum, at this point, merge. Very different personalities. One is a reserved and scholarly uh, Lithuanian. The other one is a far more outgoing Galician. And um, each of them um, became elected as communal leaders in the 1920s. So we have two Eliases that deal with furs. We have right, Elias right. Kastenbaum. And, and, and who's a great-grandfather. And Elias Zucks, who is a great-uncle. In the elections that took place in Leipzig in the 1920s, Elias Kestenbaum was the leader of the Orthodox Party. And you would expect that uh, Benzion Sachs would also be a, a leader of the Orthodox Party, but he wasn't. That was because he was a man of the general community. He refused to be labeled. He refused to be, um, to be restricted just to the Orthodox community. That's also, it all seems very, very modern. Like, are very, those things so, that were So when I, sh- I showed his granddaughter, I remember 15 years ago, whenever I showed her, I, I did research into this, and I found that he was a candidate for the general party, which was had no religious, there was the socialists, there, were, there was a religious party, and there was a general party which had no affiliation. And she was shocked. Mm-hmm. He was he was stood for the general party. Became joined the he was also the chairman of Mizrahi. But at the same time as being the chairman of Mizrahi, he was also a speaker at Aguda events. Uh, Doctor Borg, who was the minister of the interior in Israel, told me that he remembered Ben Zion Zaks giving a hesped for the Chafetz Chaim, mm-hmm. 1933. He said he gave the Hesped sitting on the steps of the Aron Kodesh. Wow. Because um, as a sign of mourning. Wow. There is the, the, this famous merging of the families. And uh, many years ago, 25 years ago, I went to do some research. And said to me, come back with something signed by your great-grandfather and my great-grandfather. And I did. Maus Chetim. Right, right. That famous, famous advert. It was one of many, many enterprises the two of them must have run together. Even though my uh, my great-uncle said that Elias Kestenbaum was was elected on the promise that he would provide coal in the winter and challah every Shabbos for everybody, anybody who voted for. <laughs> that sounds very populistic. So the end of the First World War in the 1920s, um, Kestenbaums are now moving westward from Galicia to um, Germany, but they're also moving away from Germany because your great-grandfather Jacob Kestenbaum had already left in 1914, had left Leipzig uh, in 1913 or 1914 to go to New York. There was a strategic decision by the Kestenbaum brothers, who were all very young, to uh, follow the model of the Rothschilds and become multinational. Okay. Brown brother stayed in Leipzig. Mm-hmm. Who's that? That's Ephraim's father, David. Mm-hmm. One brother went to London. That's Israel. Mm-hmm. Israel, who is the grandfather of Lord Kestenbaum. So they were 
did pretty well in England. Mm -hmm. And and Jacob Kesterbaum, who went to New York. And the business was called Kesterbaum Brothers. Wherever they were, the business was called, just like the Rothschild. Mm -hmm. So there was a loose connection between the brothers. And there was a fourth brother called Paul, who um, married the daughter of a very wealthy banker in Berlin. I don't know if he was, I don't think he was part of their part business. Of business. So they had a fur business? Uh, right. Or... They were fur traders. They had agents all over the world, including Russia, Portugal. And these they were... agents come how up big, again. How big in the fur industry of that time? Oh, it's hard to say. Uh, each one was very prominent where, wherever he was, in Leipzig, in New York, and in London. You have to remember there was very poor communications. We're talking mm -hmm. about... Telegram at the best, and if not telegrams, then letters. It was uh, another uncle, if we jump a little bit, talking about communications. One of my uncles, Max Adler, after whom Simcha is named, um, he had the brilliant idea of linking the financial centers of Switzerland and Germany, and it's Frankfurt in Germany, mm -hmm. and Zurich in Switzerland, by opening an office in the border village, in a village on the German and Swiss border. There was no international phone service. Mm -hmm. But he had an office on the house that was on the border that had two, two telephones, one German and one Swiss. That meant that he could do transactions. He, he was the pioneer of the international immediate transactions. That's that's a jump again to the early 30s. So where's the rest of the family that we know? So we have uh, Kestenbaum and Sachs. Kurt, in, at that time, is, is still in Germany. And, and and Jacob is there with his parents who are still living there and he and has right, built right. his own home. He, became, he was a successful stockbroker. Mm-hmm. Uh, and built a, a, a family through the 1920s. He had a daughter, Sarah, a son, David. David is the son of father of Stephen. Mm -hmm. uh, my mother, Claire, and Ziggy. And what year did they move to the house? The yellow house? The house in the yellow house? Oh, the, your, your, this is a house, of course, that you've seen. I've never seen it. Uh, I think that was always uh, through the 20s and 30s which is a uh, wonderful area it's like right by the river the river it's shocking um, yes um not far from a train station which probably didn't exist then um or maybe did uh and a very very big park like so the big park of berlin which leads to the other side of it is like the brandenburg gate really so it's right in the center yeah it's on the eastern side uh, of berlin and close to, very close to the center, and it was close to the community, yep. uh, the school. They were part of the more orthodox community, which is called Adas. So they went to the Adas Shula, the, the, the school, and also um, to one of the branches of the Adas community, which was run by Rabbi Ezra Munk. So does Grandma have cousins around her in Berlin? She has Kut. She has, yes, she has um, cousins, uh, Langnas, who, almost all of whom were murdered, uh, Widislavski, Widislavski, 
um, or then all totally murdered, all of them. And her aunt Esther, who moved to Israel in 1932, to Petah Tikva. Wow, that's early. Yes, yes, they always regretted that they didn't wait a year, otherwise they would have got um, some kind of reparations from the Germans. <laughs> yeah, better, uh, better safe than sorry. Uh, that, that was... <laughs> sometimes she would be very practical in the way she... So uh, Esther was married to Yisrael Khan, and her, her story is a little bit similar. Uh, Yisrael Khan had come to the shul in Berlin... Again, 1918, 19, and uh, he he was um, he'd been a soldier in the in the First World War. He actually was a, a Rav Tzvai because he had uh, studied in the yeshiva in Slobodka, mm -hmm. uh, where my other great grandfather had been. Uh, he'd gone from Germany to Slobodka, which was very very rare. He was treated very well there, and he came back to he was in Berlin visiting Berlin, and he. Uh, he was called up to the Torah by Kalman Kut, who was the Gabai, and he called him up to say, Khatan. He said, I'm not a Khatan. He said, that's what you think. <laughs> and then he invited him home, and he came into the house, and his Kalman Kut called his daughter, Esther, this is your Khatan. Oh. And he really didn't want to marry her. <laughs> How good. But he was too embarrassed to Why say. Why didn't he want to marry her? Nice family. Yeah, but he, he, she was short, and I don't know, she... He didn't, didn't know anything about her, but that was it. So we already have most families. We don't know what's going on with the Levines. Yes, uh, the Levines. Where are the Levines? The Levines come to America. The Levines and the Ains really said came to America at the beginning of the 20th century. Uh, Levines are in Stamford, Connecticut. How? Because Philip Levine, or the, the one who, the father of the family, mm -hmm. is called Philip Fivehall. He is a shochet, mm -hmm. and he is the shochet of Stamford, and that's uh, a big clan, uh, the Hachmilianskis, Levines, Rhinus, which is the Birnbaum's uh, grandfather, they are all concentrated in Stamford, Connecticut, until the 1920s. 1920s, Prohibition is introduced in America, which means no sale of alcohol, except in certain cases where rabbis were allowed to sell alcohol to the community for kiddush. <laughs> uh, but unfortunately, the mafia, who were, in, who were now selling alcohol in a big way, uh, and this was what created basically the uh, New York mafia, the American mafia, they also had a hold on the rabbis. There was all sorts of corruption going on, and Philip Levine complained about the corruption in Stamford, Connecticut, where wine was being sold at inflated prices because it was controlled by the mafia through the rabbi. Mm -hmm. At which point the rabbi got up and he said that the shechita of Philip Levine is no longer kasher. So the family is shattered that's why they have no faith in rabbis, and they scatter. There are some who stay in Stamford, but uh, others leave, go to New York. Sam Levine went to New York, and uh, others also. So that's why the family got to New York. Sam Levine qualified as an architect, and he married Welly Ain, mm -hmm. who was the oldest of the Ain sisters, this large family 
of very brilliant people fighting for the attention of their father. Wait, whose family is this again? The Ains. Ains are Phil Levine's mother's family. Okay, yes. she marries. She marries Sam Levine. Uh, I think who's she's very handsome. Yes, very handsome. And it was not just handsome. He's also been a soldier in uh, the First World War. He volunteered, left America, went to Palestine to fight. It was very heroic, and uh, the conditions were terrible. I knew somebody in, in London who had been in that same army, and he said to me he had every sickness known to humanity there. And he, so, didn't, and he would not go back to, he wouldn't go back to Israel even if you paid him. Sam fought what Sam war in fought Palestine? And, Sam fought against the Turks to remove the Turks from Palestine in the Jewish Legion. Part of what army? Gudud Haivri mm-hmm. of the British Army. Okay. They fought in the Bika, which was, again, weather, uh, terrible conditions. There were no fans, no air conditioners, nothing. Just the impossible heat. And um, he came back to America, qualified as an architect, and um, settled down with Willie Ain in Brooklyn. Well, there is a story in the First World War, which we somehow skipped, of Gigi. Ah, yes. Where is she? She's Gigi still in, is... She's still in Tarnoff. Gigi she was born is Yechevet. In right. She is Yetta, born in Tarnoff, one of three sisters. And With the family name of... Braff. Braff. Who is Safta's... Mother. Mother. Right. Safta's mother was uh, um, her father was Ari Leib. Safta is Lily Kastenbaum, right. whose father is Ari Leib. The story that you want to hear is the story she tells about the Austrian garrison in Tarnoff. Mm-hmm. Of course, Tarnoff is part of the Austrian Empire, and it's occupied by Austrian soldiers. And Austrian sol- Jewish soldiers used to come and eat with them. Their home, as I told you, was immediately opposite the military hospital. Mm-hmm. Not a very big building. The building is still there. It's a one-floor building covering a block, but um, that was a military hospital. And uh, one of the soldiers got into trouble. He was in danger of a very, very serious sentence. So she made friends with the commander of the Austrian garrison in Tarnoff. She was a very beautiful and charming young woman, and um, she somehow drew the attention deliberately of the commander, and they used to go out together. And she wrote in the book, I, we never did anything improper, <laughs> and he was a, a perfect gentleman. And, uh, and she managed to charm him into releasing the Jewish soldier. I'm sure that there are many other similar stories in, in the First World War and in the Second World War. Uh, I knew. I know there were other stories in the Second World War of our family. Not not of our family, but the people who were very heroic in um, using their influence in one way or the other. So after the First World War, we will talk about next chapter. Okay. Goodbye. All right. <laughs>